What a blessing to have uh, some new members join with us in covenant faithfulness and community. And uh, we are thankful for them. Thankful for you guys. If uh, uh, those of you guys that are members, that you have been part of this church for as long as you have been part of it. And, uh, and for those that are considering membership, like we would strongly encourage that. We believe that that's how you fulfill um, all the, uh, the, the one anothering principles, um, all the commands uh, that discipleship entails in Scripture, I think are best fulfilled um, in the covenant relationship of you to fellow believers in the body of Christ. And that, that's why we put such a strong emphasis on membership. <clears throat> but um, I know that we've said a lot of that. We also need to say something about Mother's Day, right? Um, I apologize, it's not a Mother's Day message. In fact, it might be the opposite of a Mother's Day message, right? It's about cruel counsel and stuff. Um, but before we get into the scripture part of it, we do want to recognize our moms among us and appreciate um, uh, that special gift and uh, the gift of ministry that they've given to us. If you are a mom, would you just, would you just stand for a moment and be recognized and appreciated um, in our membership? Thank you. Um, sometimes we do a Mother's Day message. Actually, rarely we do a Mother's Day message. But um, don't worry, equal opportunity, we never do a Father's Day message. So that's about, <laughs> it's about, it's about what we would expect it to be. Um, but uh, we do always want to appreciate our moms. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if we have, we have something special, right? I think uh, there's like little boutonnieres for the moms. And uh, we always want to highlight that because uh, that is a very particular and excellent ministry. And I think of First Thessalonians when Paul says that their ministry among the beloved um, Thessalonian Christians, uh, he likens it, right, to um, a mom caring for her nursing child. And, uh, and, you know, for us that are so masculine as we are, and trust me, this man right here is a very masculine dude, right? Um, we appreciate uh, not just the moms, but, but what femininity brings, that, that instinct, that maternal instinct of love, care, affection, and kindness. Uh, it's not surprising that the scriptures use that as an illustration for all ministers um, to think well and to, to encourage us that it's not just what we do, but it's how we do it. That, that will lead us in to Zophar, the cruel counselor in Job chapter 11. We have been um, walking through uh, Job and... Uh, um, I want to say a couple things just by way of introduction. One, I want to say that if you have not really caught on to this, God's sovereignty is, um, is, a, um, is a foundational piece of the theology that comes out of Job. But not just that God is in control. In fact, I think I've mentioned it over and over. There's not a single one of these individuals in their speeches that denies that God is absolutely in control. In fact, there's not a single one of these individuals, including Job or any of his friends, that believes that the tragedies that have struck Job are anything short of what God has intended for Job's life. You, you realize that? Job doesn't ever go, I don't know what happened. I don't know how God lets this get through. I don't know why God has allowed right, has looked the other way, and it's kind of allowed to uh, sneak in the back door all these terrible things in my life. No, Job is wondering why God has done this to him. The God has done this is not in question. It's not in question to him, to any of his friends. His sovereignty is absolute by all accounts, by everyone that will speak in the book of Job. But what I find that I think is, is, uh, is the foundational is not just that God is sovereign, but that His sovereignty is hidden. It is hidden. And this is what I mean by that. We've mentioned it several times, but I, one of the takeaways that I want you to kind of, kind of grasp onto in the book of Job is that God is absolutely in control in such a way that no one else is. His knowledge of what will take place is, is thorough in a way that no one else is. We keep mentioning it, and I, I want us to drive this home. God is the only one that knows that Job is going to be okay on the other side. 
Why is that important? Well, because Job, in his dialogues, is uncertain that he's going to be okay on the other side. He's not sure what's going to happen. He's hanging on. He's trying to trust the Lord and what he knows about our God. And he's a follower of God, Yahweh, the God of the hotel. He believes and trusts in him, but he's not sure he can hang on. He wishes he wasn't born. He can't understand why all these things must take place. His friends certainly are not sure that Job is going to be okay on the other side. He's gone through so much. God has poured all of this, what seems to them, judgment upon Job. Is he going to repent? We don't know. That's their attitude. We don't know if his faith is going to make it. Satan, who's the one that, that suggested that, you know, the reason why Job follows you is because you hedge him in because you give him blessings, take away some of that stuff, challenge his life, let's see what happens. He at least implies that I'm not sure that Job is going to be stable on the other side that he's going to make it by faith or that he's going to demonstrate himself to be a genuine follower of God. Nobody knows if Job is going to make it because they live in the, in the present. right? They, they don't have an absolute sense of what is to take place. The only one that is absolutely certain about how Job will come out of this is God himself. In chapter 1 and 2, in both occasions when he speaks to Satan, he says the same thing. Have you considered my servant Job blameless and upright? That's a declaration of God's knowledge that will, that will prove out that Job will remain blameless and upright to the end. I want us to remember that because in the midst of tragedy and difficulty, the thing that we feel is that God is distant but God is in it. And you think, well, God sent this tragedy into my life. Does that, does it, what does that speak of God? That he's distant, that he dislikes me, that he's abandoned me? No, it speaks that he is sovereign. And for whatever purposes, he's allowed that tragedy, he's poured that difficulty into your life but instead of thinking that he is distant and cold, he knows exactly how you will come out on the other side. That, that's not necessarily a comfort to you. That's not necessarily a comfort to me. Because we're still going to face the same difficulties and tragedies, whether we believe that thoroughly or not. But it is to say that God never loses control, that this universe is not random, and that whatever happens to us, God is intended for us, and he will walk us through in his care. That's important because we are talking about God often in these dialogues, and I want us to remember that. This is a reality that Zophar, Bildad, Eliphaz, that, that they do not fully comprehend. They do not know, and that's okay that they do not know, because we don't always appreciate that God is absolutely in control and knows what will happen. We know that theoretically, but its application is difficult for us. But what I want to talk about today is the other side of it, is the counseling part of it. Eliphaz first, then Bildad, and now Zophar. Friends of Job who have come to comfort him, and they have given him a ministry of presence, and now they are speaking into his life and his statements, and Zophar turns out to be the shortest, but in some ways the cruelest, of his three counseling friends. When we read the counselors, I think it is our job to think about how they have gone astray, where their counsel has failed. And I, I, will, I, I think I will direct us to three areas that demonstrate Zophar um, to have characteristics of a cruel counselor and not the best one. He's heartless in his rebuke. That's in verses 1 through 6. He weaponizes his theology. In other words, he speaks true things of God, but he aims it at Job to kind of let Job know how, how wrong he is. And then he demands repentance, which is a good thing, but he misapplies it because Job has always been a follower of God and a repentant one already. The thing we'll notice is that, again, as all the counselors are, 
most of what they say is absolutely true, especially what they say of God is certainly true, that theology is excellent and on point. They just misapply this to Job. They assume that he has done something wrong because in their very overly simplistic, black and white, closed system of theological thought, bad things happen because you are bad. Good things happen because God thinks you are good. Period. End of story. There's no such thing as a blameless one, an innocent one, having to suffer greatly in this life. There's no room for that. Because if God is that sovereign, you're bad, you get bad. You're good, you get good. And we'll see that play out in Zophar, our cruel counselor. Let's read this passage. It's only 20 verses. I know that sounds crazy from this pulpit. There's only 20 verses. But 20 verses is short in much of what we've been looking at, Job. So we'll read the entirety, and then we'll unpack it and look at uh, the three ways that counsel can go, can go wrong. Chapter 11, Job 11, starting in verse 1. Then Zophar the Namanite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than you deserve. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than heaven? What can you do? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees inequity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If inequity is in your hand, put it far away. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your holy scriptures this morning and we consider, Lord, the difficulty of giving good and true counsel, Lord, help us to recognize the failings of of true theology misapplied as being something that we probably have all done help us to internalize what the scriptures reveal about those that can be somewhat legalistic and strong in terms of binding another's conscience or assuming another's guilt And how that leads not towards you and towards grace and salvation, as it should, but instead can condemn those that should receive mercy. Father, teach us what it means to be like Christ, full of grace and truth, never backing down in the truthfulness of what your word reveals bold in its application and, uh, and willing to reprove, rebuke, to train others in the way of righteousness, but all the while doing it in such a way that is thoughtful, that is warm, that is exactly like the way that Jesus approached many sinners. And we ask that you would um, give us ears to hear, that we might hear and understand and see great things from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. One commentator, Christopher Ash, says this, One of the most frightening things about Job's comforters is how beautiful their speeches are at times, 
and how very close they are to the kind of things we often say to one another in our own churches. I like that because I think that's the point. When we study their arguments, when we look at what they have to say, they come so close to exactly the way that we often counsel and minister to one another. Randy Alcorn in um, the, what is that, the Grace Paradox, what is it? Thank you. Grace and Truth, right? Grace and Truth Paradox? Is Paradox in the title? Yeah, Grace and Truth Paradox. Excellent book if you haven't read it. He points out something that I think is, is true and endemic to, to many good Christians. He says that amongst the general sense of Christianity, there are those that lean in on grace, meaning that they will be kind and loving and supportive and emotive. They will support you, sympathize with you, etc. And usually those churches and those Christians are known to be kind and tenderhearted, hold your hand, but not too strong on biblical truth. Then there are those that are committed to truth. They know their scriptures. They know what God is like. They, they describe it because they read their scriptures. They know who God is. They're strong in their doctrinal truthfulness, but they often will hammer you over the head with what they know. There's very little grace in that. But in John 1, when Jesus is described, the Word become flesh who dwelt among us, it is said that of Him, what is characteristic of Him is both grace and truth. And thus the paradox, that we often lean towards one or lean towards the other without understanding that Christ was both. These are men, these counselors are men that lean towards truth. And because their systematic theology is shrunk down and very tight on the edges, the borders are thick and black and nothing escapes exactly what this is, they define everything according to what they know is truth and cast blame on anyone that thinks or acts in a way that's other. And so Job, Job is a casualty to the monolithic nature, the unchangeable nature the closed system of their own theological conviction. So, as we encounter Zophar, we see him to be a cruel counselor, and we begin, verses 1 through 6, with a heartless rebuke. With a heartless rebuke. I am pretty confident that you've met a Christian, if you've been a Christian for some time, who acts like they have the gift of rebuke. Right? Perhaps, perhaps you, you know, feel like you have that unique gift to rebuke, to reprove, to bring out what is wrong in others, right? They notice something that is ungodly or that is uh, unsavory in the eyes of a holy God, and they just have to let you know. That's Zophar, right? His rebuke, and that's what it is comes without compassion or a sense of what is actually happening in the life of Job and his great tragedies. He begins in verses 1 through 3. Um, he, this is his first, right, his first um, entrance into this dialogue with Job. And the first thing he says, starting verse 1, Zophar the Namathite answered and said, should a multitude of words go unanswered and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men and when you mock, shall no one shame you? The first thing he has to say to Job is, man, you talk too much. Homeboy, you never shut up. That's actually a rap song. And uh, only Gary appreciates that. And may maybe George, if George remembers his, his youthfulness, right? Um, but it, it, it's him just basically saying, if you're going to speak so many words... Shouldn't someone answer you? Because you're saying that God is this, that God is that. You have done nothing wrong, etc. Right? You, do you have a right to speak up? You're babbling. And should your babble shut us up? Someone's got to answer you is kind of his point. You can't just be speaking nonsense. It's almost like you're mocking us and God by suggesting that all of this has happened, that God has done this to you for no reason. Are you kidding we all know there's a reason. You know there's a reason. I know there's a reason. Why don't you just confess whatever that reason is? You're a babbler. He is entirely dismissing the possibility that Job is indeed blameless or innocent of anything that deserves everything that has happened to him. 
he's entirely dismissing the possibility that Job is speaking out of an honesty, a lament that is honest and raw, expressing his uh, his, his pain, challenging what is happening to him as not being quite right. It doesn't make sense to him. Job does not blame God directly. He could blame God, but he knows that God is always right. And that seems to be part of his argument. Job will not curse God directly, right? Because he knows that God has always been good, so it would be inappropriate to curse God. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord is his good and excellent theological commitments. Job could not reject God because he knows that God is real, that his relationship with God is real. That he can't just curse God and die. He can't just walk away from God because God is God. He's committed to this God. He knows this God. He has walked with this God probably for decades. And so Job's not trying to get away from God. He's just trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Is this okay? It doesn't make sense to me and this is terrible. And And what's Zophar's reaction to all of that pain to all of that, just trying to speak out what he doesn't understand, his reaction is, why don't you shut up? You talk too much. You're going to make yourself righteous by just talking us to death? Let me tell you what really is. And that's why we're saying that there is a compassionlessness to him. There is a heartlessness to his, his gift of rebuking. He says, Job... You talk too much. Now, why don't you open up your ears and listen to what I have to say? Because not only are you wrong, you deserve worse than what you've got. Look, look at verses 4 through 6. Starting verse 4, it says, For you say, My doctrine is pure and I'm clean in God's eyes. And put a pause right there in verse 4 because this is interesting. So Zophar is reacting to Job and saying, Job, you keep saying you're blameless, but he takes it another step because Job nowhere says that he is absolutely pure and especially he does not say, I am clean in God's eyes. Job's contention is that he is blameless, meaning that he hasn't done something secretly, something vicious and terrible that has this as a consequence. He doesn't claim that he's not a sinner. In fact, he will recognize his general sinfulness as all human beings are sinners. He recognizes that, but he's been a follower of Yahweh all these years. It is his habit, apparently, in the opening chapters to offer sacrifice to God, to worship. This is before the law. This is before the Mosaic Covenant. This is before the enactment of a temple. He has taken it upon himself to do that which even Abel, in Genesis 3, understood, Genesis 4, understood to do. To bring an offering to the Lord because he could be guilty. Because it is appropriate to praise God. He is a worshiper of God. He's claimed his innocence, his blamelessness, meaning that he hasn't done anything that deserves this penalty. But Zophar takes that to mean you think you are perfectly clean in God's eyes. My doctrine is pure. I am clean in God. That's what you claim. So verse 5, he says, Oh, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips. I wish God would speak to you. You keep saying stuff like, I wish that God would answer, that God would, that he would drop knowledge, that he would let me know what, what, what has gone wrong in my life. And he's saying, dude, I wish he would speak. Because if he spoke, it'd be pure judgment poured out upon you. You will be quickly ashamed for what you're asking for. Verse 6, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. See, verse 6 is, again, we will see more good theology from the mouth of Zophar. But verse 6 is true, that God... He knows and he can tell us the secrets of wisdom. He is manifold, meaning that there, there is, there, that there is um, um, a wide variety of everything that God understands. God's knowledge is thorough, but the way that he applies this knowledge to Job's life is God has a tremendous and infinite wisdom. His understanding of everything is unparalleled. So you should take note, Job. 
that if he exacts something from you in judgment, in his mercy, he hasn't given you right, everything you actually deserve. He does know your sin. And you deserve worse. That is like one of the cruelest things that you can imagine. We're not talking about a guy that lost his job. That's sad. If you've lost your job, I don't mean to diminish that. I'm just saying you still have life. You have energy. You have a church, right? God bless you. We hope that you get a job, right? We'll pray for you. We'll help you. We're not talking about a person whose girlfriend broke up with him. Again, I don't want to walk through this over and over, but if you have a girlfriend back over here, we feel bad for you. We love you. You know, we want to care for you, right? Like, but we are talking about how if everything has fallen apart, your children have been killed, your life has been ruined, your health is ruined, your wife has gone home to be with her parents. I mean, if everything has fallen apart around you, it's a, it's a, it's a measure of difficulty and pain unprecedented, even in the pages of Scripture, what would be your response to that? This isn't as bad as you deserve, fool. That's this great rebuker's response to Job's pain. There's a general truthfulness to his theology. God does know, and God knows the depths of your heart. He knows even the sins that you haven't committed, but you considered. God knows everything about you. And his judgment is absolutely right. And his knowledge is absolutely true. That's true. But he hasn't poured out everything that you deserve. That part is also technically true. Right? Job has not been cast into the eternal fire. He is not paying for his sins eternally. The problem is not the lack of truthfulness. It's truthfulness misapplied. And it's certainly truthfulness misapplied without any tender affection whatsoever. It is so unlike the counsel that we as Christians ought to be giving. I'll just give you a few things. Romans 12.1, when Paul is encouraging the Romans to act a certain way, he says, I appeal to you therefore. I won't even read you the rest of that. Romans 16, 7, I appeal to you, brothers. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. For Ephesians 4, 1, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you. So, so there, there's a pleading, an appeal, an urging. There's that tender kind of, dude, we got to get this right. Let's do this right. This is our God, our Savior that we're talking about. I think that's appropriate. And we are urging, we are pleading with compassion. I think that's exactly where we're supposed to be. But this isn't that. This is, dude, I wish God would answer. Then you get it worse than how it's been. I can't imagine in this earthly life how it can be much worse for Job. Right? I, I don't know, like, like, you know, his heart stops and then he's like, you know, gasping for air, and he falls down, and then he starts beating right before he dies. I, I, I don't know what else you could add to his tragic pain. But Zophar is convinced that God could pour out more. You deserve more. And he will imply that it's because you're hiding something that you won't reveal to us. Can I remind you, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, if we're going to encourage, exhort, um, rebuke those that we care about, I think it's an excellent verse, and it says this. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. If there's a counseling verse for you, that's the verse. One, there's an ur- like there's a, there's a appeal. I urge you, brothers, there's a connection, right? Admonish the idle. In other words, some people are idle. You just need to get on them a little bit. That's the rebuke. Some people are faint-hearted. You don't rebuke the faint-hearted. I think Job might be in that category, right? You encourage them. You try to build them up towards the things of the Lord. There are some that are just weak. Their faith has failed. They're not sure what to do or they just don't know better. You go help them. You aid them. And you demonstrate patience with them all. The right means for the right circumstance and patience and love throughout. Let me give you a better way to approach, right, rebuke. Not, not only that in 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, but two principles as, to keep it simple. One, self-inspection. 
You guys remember from Matthew 7? When Jesus talks about, you know, don't judge lest you be judged. And then he says, why, right? Like, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? There's a two by four coming out your eyes. You might want to get that checked, right? So with that in your, that issue in you, are you busy trying to get the little speck out of your brother's eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Self-inspection first. Check yourself first. So that you have something to bring and it's not merely judgment. And then patience. 2 Timothy 4, 2. Preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. And then this is the part that the person who has the gift of rebuking cherishes. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But there's more to that verse. With complete patience and teaching. There needs to be a gentleness, a patience that follows along the path of our Creator. Rebuke is necessary. Reproof is necessary. And if you're hearing me saying that that's not necessary, then you haven't heard me quote all of those passages in the New Testament. It is absolutely good and excellent and helpful, but it can't be heartless. It can't be cruel. It can't be my self-righteousness put on display. It can't be me thinking, well, this is, this is what I think you ought to do, and I'm disappointed that you don't see this. I can't believe how worldly you are. I can't believe how, how hopelessly lost you are. If you could correct these things in you, you would make yourself better before the Lord. Now stop right there. Because if you have ever counseled someone to not watch such a thing, listen to such a thing, drink such a thing, do such a thing, and in your mind, your intention is I'm trying to help them be better before the Lord? That is not theology that's preached here. There is no helping you get better before the Lord. Right? Like if you obeyed me, and I said, you're not going to do this, you're not going to dress this way, you're not going to do... Right? And you just obeyed down the line all the things I commanded you to do, does that commend you to God's grace and His holiness. No, that just commends you to mine. It's self-righteousness. Can you catch yourself in that? Is there, is there room to speak in? Yes. To say, hey, listen, um, I'm concerned about some of the choices you in entertainment. You know? I'm, I'm not trying to just cast you out. I still consider you a brother of Christ. I'm just saying, is this healthy for you? And let me encourage you to talk that out with the Lord is different from me coming with a sense of judgment. This is what you must do. We'll get deeper into that, right? It starts with a heartless rebuke. But 7 through 12, he begins to weaponize good theology. And I say it's good theology because it is. It's good theology. Starting in verse 7, he basically says, you can't know what you think you want to know, Right? about the things of God. Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 7. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? Is, it is higher than heaven, so what can you do? Deeper than Sheol. Sheol is a reference to the grave, right? To being, to being buried. Is deeper than Sheol. How can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. You're not going to find the depths and the limits of the Almighty. That part is true. All of the friends have a very strong theological sense of God's transcendence. That's excellent, right? He is higher than heaven. What can you do? You 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 can't argue with Him who is higher than heaven. He is deeper than the deepest underworld. You're not dead, Jed. You're not even in that realm. You can't argue with Him, Right? The measure of God and who He is, His value is longer than the earth, broader than the sea. It's impossible for you to get around. And it's true. This is all theologically accurate. We can't know God like a friend knows a friend in that way. Knowledge to knowledge, God is far beyond us. Isaiah 55, 9 says the same. For as high, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's inexhaustible in terms of wisdom and knowledge, right? Ephesians 3.18, um, that we may have 
strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, the height and the depth of the knowledge of who God is and what he has done in Christ. This is accurate. And I have a lot to say about that. That is good. But you see the tone of it. We could take good theological truth and we can, we can spin it in such a way that kind of feels like, can you find the deep things of God? Can you figure out the limits of the Almighty? The answer is no, none of us can. But it's in, intentionally pressed in on Job. Furthermore, right, he says, he sees your sin. Right? He sees your sin. You can't think in comparison to who God is. Verse 10, if he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? He imagines this, that God is passing through and he sees your sin. So he nabs you as he should and he throws you in prison. Then he summons the court to appear and he says, can you resist him? Can you turn him back? Can you say, no, you know, your justice is off or that you are doing what is wrong? God is police, prosecution, judge, and jury. You can't resist him. This is all true, but he is implying this to say that, Job, you've done something wrong. Verse 11 gets closer to accusation. He says, for he knows worthless men. Who, who might Zophar be talking about? Well, he's talking at only one person, right? He knows worthless men, men that are empty, that are hollow. That's, that's our term, hollow men, right? A phrase that T.S. Eliot uses in his famous poem. That we are just empty, worthless, just kind of shells of human beings. When he sees inequity, will he not consider it? If God sees sin, won't he do something about it? The answer to all of these are yes. Verse 12, a proverb, but of stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. The ESV translation is pretty good. Not exactly word for word, but it gets the idea of this, this proverb. How quickly can a stupid man get understanding? Well, as soon as pigs fly, right? As soon as a wild donkey's colt is born, it's a man. When a wild donkey gives birth to a man, that's when a stupid man will get understanding. That, that's, that's his... He, he's saying, you, you can't know, you, you can't think. You know, the interesting kind of uh, thing that, that we pick up in terms of the flavor of their... Their, uh, their worldview is amongst Job's friends. You notice that God is never really near. He, he's not, he's merciful, yeah, but kind of theoretically so. He, he doesn't really sympathize. God is just black and white, you know? And if you sin, then that's what you get. But if you don't sin, then he's really good to you. He's almost like this, this universal push and pull, right? And it's just really simple to them. But because God is so simple to them in that way, so monolithic, He never comes near to sit beside us in our pain. Psalm 34, 18, we sing that sometimes, that phrase, He is near to the brokenhearted. See, that's an expression of truth that sometimes, you know, those that are knowledgeable about who God is, heartless about the rebuke to others, who can weaponize their theological thinking of God in such a way to direct it at people and not to people. It's like the people that speak at us, right? And speaking, instead of speaking to us. God sympathizes with our weaknesses. I mentioned this over and over because it's, it's so, I think, significant um, as we apply this to someone like Job. But in Hebrews 4, verse 15 says that we do, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's a weird phrase, right? A double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, if you have a double negative, you just come out with the single, single positive. I mean, in other words, the author of Hebrews could have written, for we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, and that would be absolutely true. Why does he use a double negative? Well, probably 
as many commentators have pointed out, probably because it is the temptation of these Hebrew Christians who are homeless because they've been kicked out of Rome. They are in dysphoria, right? Wondering if they'll ever have their normal life back. It is, it is probable that they are tempted to think that God is unable, or Christ is unable to sympathize with their weaknesses. I'm not Jesus. And because Jesus is Jesus, he probably doesn't get this, but this is hard for me. That's probably where they're at. Their, their struggle is, is, is Jesus Christ, our, our Lord, our Savior, our High Priest, he probably doesn't understand. He cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So the author of Hebrews intentionally takes that phrase and gives you the negative. He is not the kind of high priest who does not or cannot sympathize, right? Who cannot not sympathize with our weaknesses because they're tempted to think that he does. Instead, the way that we are called to think about our Jesus, our great high priest, is that he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin, but we could draw with confidence to his throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're not understanding what Hebrews 4, 15, and 16 are saying, read that to yourself like this week and just meditate on that. It is saying that Jesus is the kind of high priest that doesn't go, man, oh man, yeah, I don't like what you're doing. You just need to stand off. You know, I need to take a break from you. He's not the one that says, man, I can't take this. It was illustrated well for me. One pastor talking about how um, he had met this, uh, this classic pianist that was really renowned, really excellent, and uh, as kind of, you know, uh, as an encouragement to him, on, on the drive, he turned on like the classic radio, right? And there was a piano piece being played. And the pianist said, could you turn that off? And he says, oh, okay. And he turned it off. He goes, oh, you, know, you, don't, you don't like that piece? And he goes, no, I just... I can't stand hearing all the mistakes. He's so good. He's so perfect. He can hear the slight mistakes that we, that, you know, people like us can't understand, can't, can't comprehend. God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, right, understands all of our mistakes. He knows them, but he doesn't say, turn that off. Can you shut down Nam's prayers? I'm tired of that fool, right? Put that guy at a distance, I know you're going through a lot, but come on, so is everybody. Could you stop? No, it's the opposite. He sympathizes with us. This is exactly what, what Zophar, Bildad, Eliphaz cannot seem to do or comprehend about who God is. He is absolutely true. He is absolutely knowledgeable. He is absolutely everything. He is absolutely loving and gracious and compassionate to those who do not deserve compassion. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, even though he has not. That's a remarkable thing about our God. Heartless rebuke, weaponizing theology, misapplied repentance. And we've got to run through this one a little bit fast. He says some excellent things here, things that, that, that are good, and, and maybe some in this room actually need to hear. Verse 13, he says, repent. If you prepare your heart, it's a, it's a good term. It means to establish or to make something right. If you take your heart and you prepare it, how do you prepare it? He says, you will stretch out your hands towards him. And it's the posture of the repentant where they will lift their hands and they're begging in prayer, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, right, the sinner. Verse 14, if inequity is in your hand, put it far away. Put your sin away from you. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. It is interesting because verse 14, the vocabulary that Zophar chooses, right, inequity and injustice, they're used in the Old Testament particularly in the context of taking advantage of people. Covert acts of extortion and oppression. He is implying, Job, we didn't catch you, but God knows this kind of judgment doesn't happen to normal people because you're doing some things that are not normal. And just because we don't see it doesn't mean there's not inequity, there's not injustice coming out from your hands and the things that you're doing. He's implying that Job is, he's committed these covert sins against others. 
But if you prepare your heart, stretch out your hands towards them. If there's inequity in your hand, put it away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. Don't, don't allow these things to be. So repent, turn, look to God and repent. Good word. Love it. Verse 15 through 18. And then be blessed. Well, verse 19, be blessed, right? Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. These are tre- tremendous blessings. You will forget your misery. You'll remember it like waters that have passed away. It's, it's like the rain has come and it dries up. It'll be just a distant memory, Job. Your life will be brighter than the noonday. What a blessed and, and life-giving illustration. Its darkness will be like the morning. You will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. There are some commentators that think that what he is offering is a false repentance. A repentance is based on the reestablishment of all his blessings. I mean, I guess that's possible, but that might be reading a little bit more into the tone than we can see in terms of what he actually says. He seems to imply that this is what we know from God, that though that sinner that repents, God will renew them, refresh them, will give them all of this blessing that comes out of repentance. So you repent, and then you're blessed. I think that's all he's saying. In all of that, I would say, amen, that's true. In fact, there are probably some in this room that need exactly that word that you have never placed your faith in Christ like you should. You have never recognized your sin and repented of that and turned to Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins and for the penalty of your sins to be paid in full. You need to repent, put away your sins, and look to Christ. That is true and excellent, and it's excellent and true in the Old Testament. It's excellent and true in the New Testament. The only Savior is God, and we could turn to Him. Sinners can turn to Him and know that they could be free and receive this kind of blessing. Forgiveness, peace, security, and joy. That's just true. The problem is misapplied. Job, from the very beginning, is a worshiper of God. In today's terms, in our vernacular, it'd be say that this guy has been a faithful member of a church. He has loved the Lord. And it's not just his external showing up to church or doing stuff. He actually loves the Lord. He worships well. He worships regularly. Even stuff that he's not, he's not required to do, he just loves his God. Is that the guy that needs to repent? Only if there is that kind of deep-seated sinister, hidden sin that Zophar is claiming that Job has. And if not, what are we accusing him of? Something that he has not done? That's called injustice. That's unrighteousness. The problem is that Job has no secret sin to repent of. That's what he keeps saying to his friends. He has no motivation to gain something Right? He, his, his entire purpose is not to have all this stuff secretly. He just wants to know what's going on. Why was God poured this into my life? And then the final warning that he gives him, right? Repent and be blessed or perish. Verse 20, but the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. That last phrase, their hope will be a final dying gasp. It's literally an exhale. Their hope is, and they're gone. Repentance is right and true, but misapplied to someone like Job. It may be appropriate for some of you, you do need to repent and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. But when God eventually tells Job, who is this guy talking all this nonsense, right? Job does repent in dust and ashes, for his statements that seem to question he will not repent to his friends of a sin, a hidden sin that he has never committed. Don't substitute genuine repentance for something in the way of cheap guilt. Don't bind someone's conscience or or lead them in your legalistic manners or your customs or your privileges or your convictions and think that now they are like you, fantastic, because Jesus says explicitly to the Pharisees, you have made them all just like you, cursed. 
sons of curses, right? Just like you. Job's point of view is, I don't understand what's happening. And we won't always understand when it's happening. But every single one of these actors, these speakers are accurate. God is God. He is in absolute control. And for us, knowing everything that we've known, everything that God has said, we know that Job is going to be okay. We know that God in his wisdom has orchestrated all this intentionally. We know that God has a plan and that even when the innocent suffer, there's a purpose in it. And we know that the grandest purpose in innocent suffering is the person of Jesus Christ. What would these guys have said to Jesus? Well, of course you got crucified. You must have had some secret sin, some secret ambition, right? Jesus lived a perfect life. He died the death that he shouldn't have died. And he did it in payment for our sins, sins that we actually committed to pay the penalty of death that we actually deserved so we might be right with him. See, Job is looking forward to that day. He's trying to figure it out, why this is all happening to him, but he is a precursor of the great innocent sufferer to come. And we don't want to just leave Job here with Zophar's cruel counsel. We want to remember that Job is going to be okay on the other side, not because Job is so strong, but because God has already declared it. In that same way, we look to our God. Zophar gives excellent advice. If you need to repent, you need to repent. And you need to turn to God. You need to confess your sins and abandon them. You need to seek a Savior and find a mediator and find someone that will come between you and a holy God. And that person is Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. And that is where our hope lies. Not in ourselves, not in changed circumstances, not even understanding why everything happens, but in who God is and who has revealed himself to be. In Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and the lover of our souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as we look to the word. And Lord, we receive this absolute reproof and rebuke from it. That we often speak and act as if we are your emissaries of judgment. Lord, if we know truth, God bless us. Thank you that we know truth. But let us not weaponize truth or use that in a way that diminishes others or to treat especially other Christians as if they are unworthy of your grace. But instead, help us, Lord, to look to ourselves and to look to you and to walk in gracious and humble dependence and not shy back from speaking up when things need to be corrected, but to do it in a manner that honors you, full of grace and truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name.